Welcome to another episode of the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. Uh, here with Chip, and today we're going to talk a little bit about one-liners of the multitude of thousand things that make you better as a tennis player that you may think of or you may not think about. But obviously, Chip went to a, a pretty good level, so I'll start with you, Chip, and we'll go back and forth. Mm-hmm. What was one of the one of the many things that made you a better tennis player? Um, one was belief. Expand. Well, you have to believe. You have to believe it. Believe that it's possible for it to be possible. So you think it before you be it. Okay, I'll go along those lines with the next one. And that is, you have to, or it's better if you can visualize it, where you actually see a picture of it happening so that it does put in your mind that it is possible, and then you try to reproduce that vision. Mm -hmm. Your turn. Okay. Dream. It's a, it may seem a little bit far-fetched, but when you get down to it, all these great players, when they were kids, they dreamt about playing on Wimbledon, uh, playing on center court, playing Wimbledon, or <clears throat> US Open, or, or whatever, or, or wherever. So the first thing is dream the dream. Keep dreaming it and then it'll be real. Okay, I'll go with the next one and I'm gonna say become a ball boy. If you're young, or maybe if you're even not young. <laughs> the the fact that I ball boyed and was fortunate enough for Louisville to have a pro tournament and to see Rod Laver when you're sitting there at the mm-hmm. net and watching him serve. Mm-hmm you learn what they're doing and then that's the visualization that can take place. So I say be a ball boy or a ball girl. That's that's very insightful but uh, the truth of it is though that your serve was much better than Rod Laver so we'll go to the next one. And what I came up with is uh, you're going to have patience because many times the people, uh, the players of, of whatever caliber, they want it right now. It doesn't matter the caliber. They want it right now. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to be willing to stick it out. And it is not fun Sometimes it's windy, you're on a park court, um, there's nobody there, and you might be practicing your serve or what have you, and you have to be willing to put the time in. So I, yeah, I would say be patient. Okay, one of the things that I think is important um, talk in terms of when you're playing a match Mm -hmm. is to be able to find a way 
to con yourself into <laughs> thinking you're either somewhere else and you're not playing this match where you feel so much pressure, be it your parents are watching you and you know that they want you to win or possibly mm -hmm. you want to beat this person because it's your goal to beat him to get to the next level and because of that you get emotional. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's ways. Oh, you're saying calm. There's ways to calm yourself and to distract yourself from the task at hand, while still be concentrating on the task at hand. And only a player can kind of understand that, I think. But uh, I would say to try to find a way to divorce your emotions as much as possible from the match, because that's where choking usually comes from is something that you're internalizing mm-hmm yeah good yeah I thought you said con and I realized well no, he's saying calm no I said con yourself into thinking that there's not pressure on the match that you're somewhere else I used to sing a song to myself okay. or even under my breath somewhere some way to actually almost make it like subconscious like when mm. you warm up you're always hitting the ball well and then you get into the match or mm -hmm. you're on the driving range killing sh uh, okay. drives then you get on the course and you choke up okay well yeah all right your turn good yeah you find you might find out what works for you that's what you should do definitely um i would say you would want to uh Be disciplined because this is really what it this is another uh, quality that one can definitely acquire it is a certain amount of discipline and uh, we're not talking about any force or pain suffering and other kind of nonsense it's just you being in control of yourself, especially in real tough moments, because in the heat of the match, all kinds of things become active and operating against you. And everything, as we know, is all self-generated. So you got to be able to shut all that stuff off and focus on the uh, job at hand. And it's a particular discipline that one learns. And then when you talk to some of these players and other athletes, that is something that all have in common. That's a good one, discipline. It makes you disciplined to go out and practice, mm -hmm. disciplined to do things that you don't really want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to tell you one thing that really helped me a lot, and I, I've heard a lot of great players from Bjorn Borg on down mm -hmm. that have done this, and that is hitting on a wall. When, mm -hmm. Especially when you're at a young age, being able to, uh, it's one thing to try to hit the ball as technically sound as you can, but it always comes down to errors, and the wall is the way you get consistency. Not only hitting on the wall, but hitting on the wall with a purpose and doing it repeatedly with discipline 
and repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see a lot of juniors hitting on walls. Very few do I ever see hitting on walls, and maybe they don't have access, or maybe they just don't know. And you know, it's good for adults too because a wall is just not going to miss. <laughs> you can get to a place where you're trying to hit if it's a concrete block wall, certain blocks or you know, painting those squares with chalk or something. And the, I used to do that and, and learned incredible control. People would wonder, gosh, Block doesn't miss that much. Mm-hmm. Why does he not miss that much? And I attributed a lot to uh, hitting on a wall. Right, yeah. I did too when I was younger. And uh, later training was also... A dress hitting on the wall, the repetition, the ball coming back. <clears throat> but yes, that's another technical aspect of uh, our first foray into the technical scene of tennis. I'm still a little bit hung with uh, the, 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 the mental side of it. And there are some things that I've learned that would be very useful for players now. And I knew this because I came in at the time and the the Australians and so on. You know, I met Labor and Roswell and Roy Emerson and John Newcomb and these guys. And it sounds corny, but I, I really admired them because they were nice. And they were very gentlemanly. And all of that pent up emotion on having the killer instinct and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they played another way, but to how they were. And they're very friendly and really communicative. So for our listeners out there, I would tell them to be nice, be fair, and really be in communication with people. And this is how these guys, they didn't know me from Adam, okay? And it was a very good example. And Phil Dent was in there with him. I remember the first time I saw these guys. And it was in a social event uh, right around the tennis court. And I walked in and I was just barely out of the juniors. And here these guys were and somebody knew my name and they were very friendly. So yeah, I'd like to uh, put a stamp on that so that these people who come and listen, find out, yes, it will be helpful for you to be nice and friendly. That way you can play better. You won't have a bunch of nonsense running around you. So that's where I'm at. That's a real interesting statement uh, because, you know, it's like my tennis coach at Texas told me mm-hmm. a couple months ago. He said, you know, there were just thousands and thousands of matches, and we really don't remember a lot of the outcomes of the matches, but we remember the people and the players and 
what kind of players they were and, and more more so how they acted. And you remember when somebody was just a real sportsman, um, you know, you remembered those things. So that's a, yeah. and it. And I agree that does help you to be a better player because you, you seem to get on a more even keel and you can justify the wins and the losses and even, you know, the bad stretches in a match. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that... Uh, I see, and I've seen it for a lot of years, is one of the reasons a lot of juniors, I think, today in America aren't getting that much better mm-hmm. is they don't play sets. They don't play enough sets. You know, there's a lot of drilling going on, and I don't know how much two-on-one's going on, some of the you know, Aussie drills of old, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not out there watching the best players in the country, but... Um, mm-hmm. I remember Jack Dara, who was the Junior Davis Cup coach when Zan Gary and Brian Godfrey and Stockton were on the team and mm-hmm. um, some others, of course. And uh, I remember our, our, our old pro was the first cousin of Antonio Palafox, who won the U.S. Open and Wimbledon doubles and was John McEnroe's coach up in New York. And, and mm-hmm. Gustavo Palafox, before he moved to Little Rock, was the head pro at the Louisville Boat Club. And I, th- we had this, you know, national junior tournament, and I mm-hmm. remember them being out there running sprints or something, and, and Gus Palafox was going, these guys don't play sets. They've got to play sets to get better. And, you know, we know that from playing and coming up on college teams and playing in, in the pros, that that's one of the best ways, I guess, other than playing a tournament, is to play practice sets. Yeah, well, you know, you're not going to find a 100% agreement with that because it's uh, it's not remotely um, an absolute truth because the guys know what they have to do. That's the only real truth truth here is that the player, the, okay, I I have to do this if I want to do that. So why do I have to play sets a whole lot more? And everybody's different. Um, I can recall uh, training with Yannick Noah for a couple of weeks. He never played any sets. But Elliot Telcher, another top tenor, was crazy about that. I gotta play sets, I've gotta play matches. Mm-hmm. So you know, it really depends on the individual. Uh-huh. You know, it's a really it's a personal thing. You know, uh, some other guys need to uh, work on the, the feel they need to be more physically fit and go out yeah. and run a whole bunch. Uh, well, what about that? What about that? For example, you were a, mm-hmm. you came and you were a, a weightlifting tennis player, which mm-hmm. was not really done back in those days. None of us really lifted weights mm-hmm. and got bigger and you that kind of helped you become a really good player the fact that you were physically strong but mm-hmm. maybe tennis players I guess working on that more now I mean yeah yeah it's, it's, it's a definite mainstay and has been for 20 years um, I mean you look at Roger Federer he doesn't have pecs he doesn't have big arms he done, uh, he's doing something okay mm-hmm. he's doing something okay believe it when, well, he, yeah. when, he, when he won Wimbledon one day and 
squatted down, yeah, and put his back on the ground. I was like, uh-huh. That's a flexibility uh-huh. thing. So you look at his legs. They are not skinny. They are not small. They are developed. You get that from weight training, either from free weights or exercises where you utilize your own body weight. I see. You see, so that's another story, and I wish one of these guys would call in so we could really talk about that because they're really big on that in Europe. Okay, I've, I've talked to some folks about it, and uh, their level of training is on a different uh, tangent than ours because they're much more scientific with this and computerized and what have you. But in, anyway, you still have to be able to really do it. So the guy has to be able to, you know, the question is, can he do it? Or her. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you mm-hmm. coached a girl uh, several years ago that was one or two in the world. What was her name? Yankovic. Yeah, Jelena Jankovic. She, at the time... And she wasn't... Uh, she was thin. Was she... You, you in weight training with her? And I was in there long enough. It was not at the right time. I actually helped her because she was in the middle of a depression. I was going to quit tennis. And at my... At the request of others, uh, they asked me if I could do some uh, uh, technical training for her. In other words, help her with her serve, because most of the tennis fanatics of the last 40 years know that I had quite a powerful serve. Well, I did uh, get in with her and convinced her, yes, talk to me. And I got her to literally talk to me. And then she realized she really, you know, gosh, this, I can talk to this guy. And, uh, and some other things that happened. But I can tell you something, and this is a very important point, that people really need to know this, that with most of these players nowadays, they really need to know that somebody is there and somebody is listening to them because they really feel really unacknowledged as people and as players. And when I, when I met with this girl, she had a whole group of people around her and, and I'm sitting there and... She had her uh, ball cap pulled down over her eyes and had been uh, losing. And then a, a group of girls came up and asked for her autograph. And she tried, she shooed him away. And I politely leaned over the, the table <clears throat> and I called her by her name, said, Jelena, Jelena. She looked up at me and I said, listen. It could be worse, you know. These people could not want your autograph. And man, that girl started cracking up. Like I said, the funniest thing ever. Brightened up, stopped crying, and said, you know, I like you, let's go eat something. 
and then uh, asked me to go to the court and of course I fixed their serve in 10 minutes and I go through that saying but the thing that's really important is that I uh, got in communication with her and I didn't know that at the time that that was what made things work because we worked for a couple of days I worked on some things and we had fun lots of laughing so you opened her up so that she was receptive to what you were saying and buying in, so to speak. No, <laughs> not at all. What I did is I opened her up so she could demonstrate more of her potential. And she was just, she was happier, more uptone playing better she left me and won the next tournament and I sat around and did whatever and worked with some local kids and then all of a sudden I get a call to uh, if I want to go work with her again at Wimbledon I said okay but then I was focusing on technical things and that's that was incorrect I wasn't into that I mean I could see she had some things that were totally off but couldn't have it so unbeknownst to me, the way I know now, if the chance ever does arise again, and for anybody else out there who's in a similar situation, you gotta get the person to listen to you, and you gotta get them to feel happy. If they do that, they will play better, guaranteed. I see. Very interesting. Isn't it though? Yeah. <laughs> well, Chip, it's been another great uh, episode uh, what uh, what would you tell people as a final thought on on this because there's there's mm -hmm. so many things to talk about in terms of becoming a better tennis player yeah well it depends what we're talking about is what does better mean you does it mean more powerful because this is the thing about tennis there was a guy that I met that, Gary, you probably remember or perhaps even know, Mike Belkin. He, sure. Yeah, he was a finalist NCAA 1965 to Arthur Ashe. Uh, was Canadian. Uh, Canadian, quite well known. And uh, didn't really prosper on the tour, the, the men's professional tennis tour. But he told me something that has stuck with me. He said, you know, Chip, I said, what's that? Tennis is about um, pressure. Can you withstand the pressure that your opponent is um, placing upon you? And can you generate pressure on him? And I was like, hey, you know, you're right. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really tough game because of the way it is, there's a lot of pressure on it. Boy, that's so true. And, you know, there's, it's interesting. Um, I think uh, I got this from Alan Fox mm -hmm. in one of his readings, uh, great mm -hmm. uh, player and coach, mm -hmm. Pitt Pepperdine, uh, top tenor in his own right. And, uh, coached Brad Gilbert and wrote a couple of books on how to win 
And uh, I think it was in a tennis magazine where mm-hmm. he pointed out that there's always a time in the match when your opponent will weaken and give you an opportunity if you seize the moment and kind of philosophically think that there's going to be that time because a lot of times somebody's just playing out of their tree and maybe they will for a whole match but even in that situation there's going to be a point where if you can pounce on the opportunity that your opponent uh, you know and this isn't if somebody's like a 5-0 and somebody's a 2-0 obviously it's not going to happen but all things being even there's always an opportunity where that person's going to let down and and uh, and the other thing is to, you know, that he talked about was at, at that point, there's also a point in the match where mm-hmm. you're going to let down, you know. And, of course, one of the places is the first couple games of the second set, especially if you won the first, mm-hmm. that it can get away a little bit. But, uh, you know, if you remember it and you look at it that way, instead of thinking, i got to win, because I always used to say, oh, i got to start out fast, win the first <laughs> set, and then kind of hold on. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a lot of people that became very good tennis players that would lose the first set and kind of work their way into a match, and at the end you had to beat them mm-hmm. to win that match. So yeah. it's interesting how you, you talk about I agree about with that. that, especially the point about the letdown and, and recognizing it. Mm-hmm. And you got to yes. be mature to be able to do that without having that emotion come in. And that's part of the maturity of a tennis player. I yes, think. you know, and we can devote a whole show to that. Okay, <laughs> when a guy, what do you do when you? How does one seize the opportunity, or how does one create the opportunity? Yeah, good point. Well, Chip, thanks. That wraps up another great show, and let's get back on the air soon together. Will do. Thank you. All right. See you, folks.